You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We wanted to take a second and ask if this podcast has helped you or encouraged you, if you could leave a review for us in whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. These help immensely to spread the word and to reach others with the same material that's helping you. Today, Douglas is continuing his series on Old Testament characters, now discussing the life of Jacob. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Old Testament Podcast 11 on Jacob. I bring you warmest greetings from brothers and sisters in Guyana, Trinidad, Panama, Venezuela, and especially Colombia, where I am right now, speaking at some of the universities in Cali. We're going to continue our series of Old Testament characters, the plurality of whom are in the book of Genesis, and today we come to a giant in the Bible, and that's Jacob. His life spans more than half the chapters of Genesis, more than half the text. And uh, that's, that's huge. His father Abraham is mentioned uh, just over 300 times. Isaac is mentioned just over 130 times. Jacob is mentioned 380 times in the Old Testament. Like his father Isaac, he is a son of promise. Through Abraham's seed, through Isaac's seed, through Jacob's seed, the world will be blessed. And like, like Isaac, it, it didn't seem that he would even be born. Abraham and Sarah were given the promise and then had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have to wait 20 years before Jacob is born. So he's truly a son of the promise. He's also a son of faith. He doesn't marry outside the covenant. He refuses to marry a Canaanite. You'll remember that as Abraham was near the end of his life, he sent his servant back to Aram to get a wife for Isaac. And Isaac married Rebekah. In the same way, Jacob does not marry in Canaan, that he doesn't marry Canaanite, someone outside the covenant. He marries, going back to the old country, um, a true daughter of the promise, a daughter of the covenant, like his father. And so he's perpetuating a very important pattern biblically. We also know him as the loving brother of Esau and the father of the 12 patriarchs. Jacob's life falls into four parts. The first part, he's living in Canaan with his father Isaac. And then when he goes away, um, after he's afraid his uh, brother is going to kill him once he steals the blessing, he goes back to Aram and he's there for 20 plus years. Then he comes back to Canaan and then in the final part, he goes to Egypt, and that's where the book of Genesis ends, with Jacob and the patriarchs in Egypt. He's born in chapter 25, verse 26, and he's grasping his brother's heel, even as he's coming out of his mother's womb. And there's a symbolism here because his name, Yaakov, sounds like the Hebrew word for uh, tricking, deceiving, supplanting. Uh, So his name has a symbolism. He tricks his brother in chapter 25. He tricks his father in chapter 27. And the amazing thing is this is all unnecessary. He was trying to force the hand of fate. He was trying to wring certain concessions from God. But God had already promised these blessings. How many times have I done this? How many times have you done this? Working harder than is necessary? Did you ever kill yourself to get something done and then you realize, you know, I spent so much more time than was even required. Maybe we're not talking about perfectionism. We're simply talking about productivity. I work 
like a dog and half the work I did was unnecessary or wasted. How many times do I seek verbal confirmation and reconfirmation of things people have already promised me? People have given their word, but I want to follow up in the spirit of thoroughness and proper delegation. And we can end up being a bit like Jacob, trying to make things happen that they're going to happen anyway. It's like watching a pot boil or, or getting up early to make sure the sun rises. Anxiety. Anxiety can cause us to do some funny things spiritually. I mean, it should theoretically drive us to pray. (laughs) Anxiety drives me, well, I say it changes me from a prayer warrior to a prayer worrier. That is, I'll go out for my prayer walk and I come back and, well, I did say a quick prayer, but mainly I thought through things and sometimes I feel more anxious than than when I went out. But isn't that like Jacob taking things into his own hands? I get afraid that something will happen that will thwart my plans or thwart my efforts to please God. I don't really have nightmares anymore. I mean, it's been years. But there is a fairly unpleasant dream I have, and those who know me well know exactly what it is. I have a dream, and usually this is when I feel I'm under a lot of pressure. Uh, And I dream that I'm on the way to the airport and I miss a flight. Or I'm going to miss a flight. Or I'm on the opposite side of London and we're in thick traffic and, oh, we'll never make it. We'll never make it to Heathrow in time. These recurring dreams, instead of just leaving it to the Lord. And, you know, what will be, will be. And that's not a, a, uh, well, that's not a nonchalant attitude. Because we're not saying do nothing. This is not meant to be a commendation of laziness. But there are certain things that are beyond your control, that are beyond my control. And we've got to learn to trust the Lord. And, and maybe that's why I relate to Jacob more than to most of the biblical characters. Also, his name is like my name. Well, so he tricks his brother, he tricks his father. And we've, and we've explored this already in, the, in our study of Esau and our study of Isaac. And then in chapter 28, he goes to Aram or Padan Aram. And en route, God appears to him at Bethel. And the promises are reaffirmed. And this is where I'd like to begin reading. Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven. And God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on. So the Lord speaks directly to Jacob and promises him that Bethel, which is in the promised land of Canaan, is just part of what will be received. Remember, at this point, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are foreigners. They're sojourners. They, are, they don't really own real estate in Israel, except for one thing. And, and of course, that's just, that's just a burial plot. And so the Lord reaffirms the promise. Now, Jesus refers to this himself in his discussion with Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1. Remember, Nathaniel is very impressed that, that Jesus somehow had knowledge of him under that tree. And Jesus adds, John 151, I tell you the truth, 
you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, that's a beautiful connection, a clear reference to Genesis 28. And in effect, Jesus is saying, I am the stairway to heaven. If you're going to go to the Father, it's through me. And he makes similar claims in John 14 and other places. But this lesson is not uh, about the book of John, so we need to get back to the subject. I just couldn't resist commenting on that because many readers skip right over Genesis 28, 12 and don't, don't recognize what's going on. Or they pass over John 1 and they don't get the reference to Genesis. You really need to have a knowledge of the Old Testament if you're going to get all the allusions in the New Testament and vice versa. Well, the Lord continues, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I'm with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. This is the first time that God spoke directly to Jacob, and Jacob is filled with a sense of awe. We continue. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God, or in Hebrew, Bet El. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I've set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. Jacob's faith is growing here. He's realizing that God is not just cultural heritage of his forefathers. The Lord has the potential to be his own God personally. God is not just the God of Abraham or the fear of Isaac, as he's described in chapter 31, but also the Lord of Jacob personally. And this is really important uh, for our children. If you're a father, if you're a grandfather, each generation has to discover its own faith. You know, you can inherit some faith. You can inherit some knowledge. uh, You can inherit something spiritually from the previous generation. But if it's not discovered personally, it's always going to be distant. It'll be at one remove. And uh, my children, as they're Christians, and continuing to work through their faith, and my grandchildren who are not yet born, but you know what I'm saying. Each generation has to find its own way. We also see here that uh, Jacob is a somewhat tentative. Do you notice the way he worded his response to the, the vision? He says, well, if God will be with me and give me food and clothing, and by the way, God will give him so much more than that, as it turns out. If, he says, if I return safely to my father's house, well, yes, he he would. Then the Lord will be my God. It's almost as though, well, that's the condition, the Lord will be my God, but this is what I expect, and 
it, it's almost implied if God fails me there, maybe I'll look for a different God. I, I know he's not saying that theologically, that's not quite right, but, but you can feel the provisional and tentative nature of what he says. Then also we see that turning points in Jacob's life are marked by pillars or markers or monuments. Here in 2818 at Bethel, he sets up this, uh, this, this, I guess it was a pretty large stone, and he pours oil on top of it. He'll do the same in chapter 35, verse 14, when God tells him to return to Bethel. He'll do it in chapter 35, verse 20, at the grave of Rachel. And in his covenant with Laban in chapter 31, verse 45, which I just missed out. All these references will be in the notes. Well, in chapter 29, maybe one of the best known chapters, apart from the deception chapter, chapter 27, uh, Jacob gets married. So he, he arrives and he leaves Bethel, he keeps going uh, all the way to Aram, and we know that uh, Rachel was a shepherdess, and he's very encouraged to meet her. And Laban is very encouraged uh, to, uh, to meet Jacob because it's once again an opportunity for Laban to uh, get, make himself wealthier. And uh, I'm going to pick it up in, in verse 14, now that they've met and hugged and kissed. It says, verse 14, Laban said to Jacob, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. Oh yes, Laban's very interested in Jacob. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Oh, Laban's very crafty. He's maneuvering Jacob into position here. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah. The younger was named Rachel, or Raquel. Leah had delicate eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, Better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed. I want to sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place to a feast. And that evening Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Leah gave, uh, Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> Those are surprising words in scripture. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, It is not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that, and he finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Wow. Jacob had tricked his father and his brother, and now the tables are turned, and Laban tricks him. And you'll notice that the trick involves the inversion of birth order. And that's, a, that's quite a common inversion in the book of Genesis. So what, what goes round comes round. Um, I mean, Jacob gets, Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. I think there's also a great lesson here on a very different subject, on sexual purity. Jacob loves Rachel, and it says that those seven years seemed like only a few days because of, his love, because of his love for her. Now, you'd think that, oh, it would seem like total agony. But no, it doesn't work that way. And 
it's an amazing contrast to look at uh, Dinah or Dina and Shechem in chapter 34 and then look at Rachel and Jacob here in chapter 29. The contrast is this. Shechem couldn't wait. He spoke tenderly to Dinah, who was one of uh, Jacob's daughters. It says he loves her, uh, but he violates her. And they sleep together. They're not married. Uh, It's a total catastrophe in, in every possible way. And yet here we have Jacob. It says he, he loved her. And the result of real love. This is not immoral love. I mean, this is real love is that the seven years seemed like only a few days. So when someone says, well, to have a good relationship, I have to test drive my wife or husband. Uh, I can't wait that long. You know, you know, I'll wait till the third date and then we'll, then we'll be involved sexually. That, firstly, that doesn't work. Secondly, it's immoral. Thirdly, it's totally against the examples given us in Scripture. And that's just a great study to share with others. I've been using it for years. Genesis 29 compared to Genesis 34. The effects of Jacob's favoritism are huge. We've noted before that favoritism is a large theme in the book of Genesis. I'd like to read the words of uh, Gordon Wenham in the Word Biblical Commentary. Though Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah as well as Rachel, he seems never to have forgiven her for consenting to deceive him in this way. He always regards Rachel as his wife and treats Leah and her children as inferior. And this discrimination persists throughout Genesis, leading Leah's sons to try to eliminate Joseph, Rachel's firstborn and Jacob's favorite, from the family. We're familiar with the ensuing drama in chapters 29 and 30, the tug of war between Leah and Rachel, the desire to have children. Uh, Rachel is just desperate. She says, give me children or I'll I'll die. Uh, This reflects not only her own psychology, but I believe the culture of the times and indeed of much of the world even today. Not to have children is to be stigmatized. It's to be suspect. But eventually, God opens the womb, and uh, Jacob, uh, through Leah, and through Rachel, and through the the other two wives, the secondary wives, uh, actually has 13 children, 12 sons and a daughter. So the drama wraps up, and eventually, God tells him to return to the promised land. He's he's been uh, two decades in Aram. It's time to go back, and in chapter 31, he's told to return. And of course, this is such a huge story. The only way to cover Jacob in one lesson is to telescope, you know, to to chop. So that's what I'm doing. I hope you'll bear with me. I'd like to continue the reading in chapter 32, and this is the famous wrestling scene at the Jabbok. 32:22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jebok. He took them and brought them across the stream, along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip as they wrestled and dislocated his hip socket. Then he said to Jacob, "Let me go, for it's daybreak." But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? (laughs) And he blessed him there. 
Then Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping on his hip. That is why to this day the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Well, that was painful. Just a comment on some of the Hebrew words here. Uh, we do that in almost every lesson. Uh, I think it, it helps. We've already mentioned Yaakov, or Jacob, sounds like the Hebrew for he deceives. Bethel is the house of God. Jabok is like Yavek, and that's the Hebrew word for wrestle. His name is not just Jacob, but it's Israel. Israel is his covenant name, Yisrael. And Yisrael means God strives. And he feels that he's seen the face of God in wrestling this angelic representative, Peniel. And Peniel is a Hebrew for face of God. I hope that's useful. And so we see Jacob wrestling for the blessing. The blessing that's mentioned 88 times in Genesis. Jacob's wrestling for it. But why is he wrestling for something that he was already promised? Is he wrestling to keep it? Is he afraid to lose it? Or is he wrestling to gain it? Afraid he may not have it? There's some deep anxiety in this crisis of faith in Jacob. And through this, this nighttime wrestling match, Jacob comes to see that his true opponent... It's not his brother Esau, the one he ran away Ray from because Esau was thinking of killing him. His true opponent is not Esau, who he fears meeting now. It's not Laban. It, his true opponent is God. It, it reminds me a bit of the scene in Joshua 5 where the, the army commander, the, well, the commander of the, the heavenly armies, appears to Joshua, and Joshua says, well, whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? And he says, neither. Joshua 5. But Jacob comes to see something he hadn't seen before, that his true opponent is actually God. He's wrestling God. He can never win. And so, gradually, a new Israel is emerging Courage is replacing cowardice. Humility is replacing arrogance. Penitence prompts him to even try to return the blessing to Esau as though to make it up to him. Jacob is reborn as Israel. Well, that's the way the passage is often interpreted. I think there's some truth to that. There's certainly no hint of his bargaining with God in chapter 32 as he seemed to back in chapter 28 at Bethel. Or to put it a different way, his experience... Uh, at Jabok and, and at Mahanaim affected him in the way that Peniel should have but didn't. I realize I'm, I'm referring to uh, many parts of this account and uh, uh, please take the time if you're not familiar, if you've not read um, recently uh, the account of Jacob, go back and, and look at all these chapters. However, even though the new Israel is emerging, there's still plenty of the old Jacob in him. Let me give you some examples. He's still fearful of his brother. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows that Esau's not the real enemy, but he's still uh, quite timorous. And in chapter 33, as he meets him, we see the fear. And in effect, he does try to restore the blessing to him. Remember, he tricked Esau out of uh, this, uh, not this large inheritance, and it's almost as though he's giving package by package. He's giving it back to him. You know, the, here, you know, all the, the ways God had blessed him in Aram, and he's, he wants to return it. 
He promises, as we've noticed uh, before, that he was going to meet Esau in Seir. And that's in chapter 33, verse 14. But he, he doesn't. Did he just fail? Was life too complicated? Or was he being deceitful? I, I don't know. But he doesn't go to Esau as promised. We see in chapter 34, when his daughter Dina is raped, he seems to be indifferent. Now, it's hard to believe he was indifferent, but especially considering his, his strong feelings for uh, Rachel and her sons. I mean, he, he, uh, the man could definitely care. Uh, but he doesn't really do anything. And this prompts a violent reaction among Leah's uh, son, Leah's sons. Remember, this is a, a blended kind of family. And, and Dina is on the wrong side. That is, she's born to Leah. And maybe that's where the favoritism is, is kicking in. He's not really taking care of his daughter. And it wasn't because he didn't have strong emotions, as we'll see in the Joseph study. I mean, he had very strong emotions. So this prompts a violent reaction among Leah's sons who take the law into their own hands. Uh, we have this whole incident. The whole incident in chapter 34 shows Jacob, who seems more concerned for his own safety and reputation than he is concerned for his daughter. Forget the fact that the, that, that circumcision was abused. Remember, they, they trick Hamor and the whole uh, town into getting circumcised or the deceit that went on. So he's very much uh, saving his skin, kind of in the way that, that Isaac did. Uh, Gordon Wenham makes these comments. This story shows Jacob's this story shows Jacob's old nature asserting itself. A man whose moral principles are weak, who's fearful of standing up for what is right when it may cost him dearly, who doubts God's power to protect, and who allows hatred to divide him from his children, just as it had divided him from his brother. I think that's very insightful. Now, you may be thinking, this is a contradiction. Or, Douglas, you're contradicting what you said before. He's reborn at Peniel, although it's a bit later, more at Yabok and Mahanaim, that he really changes. A new Israel's emerging, but there's still the old Jacob in him. Well, which is it? And the answer, of course, is yes. It's like Romans 7. I mean, we're, we can be reborn. And it may be a major turning point in our lives. However, that doesn't mean that the old man is totally gone. It doesn't mean that our old nature doesn't reassert itself. And this is true to experience. And the, the only, if you're a Christian, the only logical conclusion, if you're going to equate true character change uh, with uh, the presence of God's spirit, that is, uh, if God's spirit's in me, I'm going to truly change. The only logical outcome will be that you will be um, uh, rebaptized every five years. Because you'll say, well, I guess I didn't really change. You see, Jacob is at work under construction. He's in process. He's learning more and more about God. He hasn't arrived. We're not saved by arriving, and we're not even saved by a perfect perspective, which is a form of Gnosticism. We all have far to go. We're all a mess. I'm a mess. You listen to this, you're probably a mess too. And that's why Jacob speaks to us. So there's no contradiction. He has significantly changed. But the old self will continue to reassert itself. Back to uh, Bethel in chapter 35. And again we see a man who's indifferent to Bilhah's abuse by Reuben. You may recall Reuben, um, his firstborn, went up and slept with his, uh, his concubine Bilhah. 
and he shows no anger, at least at the time. Now we know that it bothered him because of his parting words in chapter 49. Probably the most painful thing, uh, apart from losing Rachel, his beloved wife, was losing Joseph. Joseph is killed in Genesis chapter 37. So Jacob believes. You remember the brothers bring back the garment with the blood. And this breaks his heart. It just breaks his heart. Because Rachel was his favorite wife. And by Rachel, he had two sons. Joseph and then later Benjamin. It was actually in giving birth to Benjamin that that Rachel died. Well, the promise is reiterated in chapter 46, and eventually he's reunited with Joseph in 46:29. Now, we'll have a separate lesson on Joseph, so I won't repeat it twice. But this is simply amazing. It's such an economic use of words and typical of the scripture, not to go into the details. When the father and son are at last reunited after two decades or more, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. Notice the covenant name. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. I mean, how do you, how do you catch up for, for two decades of absence and and in his case, it was like a resurrection. Jacob thought Joseph was dead. It was, he says, now I'm ready to die. I have seen for myself that you are still alive. He was so happy to see his son. Jacob is on his deathbed in chapter 48. He first blesses uh, Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh. He crosses his hands. It's kind of a cross I don't know what you cross blessing. Is that a word? And then we have the general blessing of all the sons in chapter 49. He dies in 4933. And in a very moving scene in chapter 50, he's buried by Joseph and the brothers at Machpelah, at this piece of real estate in Canaan, even though they're at this time living in Egypt. Well, let's uh, bring, bring it together here. Hardship and pain abound in the life of Jacob. His words to Pharaoh in chapter 47, when they meet, he says, My years have been few and hard, and they have not surpassed the years of my fathers during their pilgrimages. In other words, he feels that his life is really not that great. Well, certainly doesn't have as much to show as perhaps Isaac's and Abraham's lives did. And it's an amazing scene where he actually meets the Pharaoh. And interestingly, uh, he's giving his blessing to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, the ruler, the king of the, the invincible Egyptian empire, is being blessed by this wandering nomad, not a poor man, but a man without land. Uh, a man who represents the god the true God, over against the false gods of the Egyptian pantheon. Oh, there's so much theology in this. I've got to stay away. Well, hardship and pain. He had run away from his parents. While he's away, his, his mother apparently dies. He endured the death of his beloved wife, his favorite wife, Rachel. He went through what he believed was the death of his son, And that scarred him deeply, I believe, even though they were eventually reunited. 
And at the end, he insists that he must be buried in Canaan. In other words, he has the right perspective in the end. Let me share a few things we learn about God. This is an important part of each lesson. First, even if God appears to us, and we will be improved for the exposure for having met God, our basic personality type will probably remain unaffected. Certainly, the Lord will not force us to change. That was the case with Jacob, and that's the case with us. We have to be very careful about saying, well, I didn't really change, therefore, I didn't really understand. Or I didn't have a radical shift in my behavior, therefore, God's Spirit was not in my life. That's a very tempting, but ultimately humanistic conclusion to draw. Next, God does not spare his chosen ones from tragedy. Just because you're chosen, Jacob was chosen, doesn't mean there won't be some really hard things. And we may pray for God to take away the cup, but as we know, he may say no. Third, we can wrestle God for his blessing, but if he's already promised it to us, this is wholly unnecessary. Why spend all that anguish, that, 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 that energy trying to get God to give us what he's already promised he'd give us or what he in fact has already given us. We can wrestle God for his blessing, but if he's promised it to us, this is wholly unnecessary. I certainly hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Next time, we'll look at Rachel and Leah. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Jacob. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.